All right, guys, it is 6.30. So I'm going to pull you back, and uh, we'll dive into this passage a little, a little more. Um, man, what a good passage, right? Uh, I hope you enjoyed studying this. I know it's probably not new to you. You've probably studied this um, in children's Bibles. If you've grown up in church, you've probably heard this, this story and, and recounted the seven days uh, multiple, multiple times through your life, but uh, I've, I've enjoyed it so much the last few weeks digging deep into specifically this part of Genesis. We're going to see a lot more wonderful things, but, uh, but there is so much truth to be, uh, to be gleaned and to be inspected uh, in, this, in this chapter. In fact, as I was trying to, I've been, I've been reading a lot of books and trying to uh, understand this passage for a number of weeks now, and as I sat down to finally like write today and what what needs to be said, I I was struggling big time. Like there's just too much content um, to cover. So I'm gonna do my best. I'm gonna shortchange you. There's no way to cover everything that's in here. Um, but uh, if we don't get to everything, I'm gonna try to record like a audio version of an extended uh, time. I know we still got to be out of here by seven. But um, let me pray for us before we dive in, and, and then we'll we'll try to tackle some of this stuff. Um, God, we love you, and we are grateful for. Uh, your willingness, your, your uh, imminence to, to come near to us and to give us an account of the origin of our world, the origin of our, um, of our fathers, our, our mankind. Father, you here in Genesis 1 answer so many questions that we have, and, and we're left with questions. It doesn't answer everything, but, um, but what we do see, what we're given is a, is, a, is a clear depiction of you as the creator of everything we see, you underneath and in and and working and speaking to bring us into existence, which means you're sovereign over us. You're the one who gets to dictate who we are and why we are and how we should live. So I, I just pray, Father, that we would learn to live in, um, in, in subjugation, in, in, in submission to you as creator, to you as Lord. And, and in the things we're seeing here um, in Genesis 1, Lord, that you'd uh, convict our hearts, uh, places where we're not living up to that, and, and, and guide us by your grace into, into greater faithful living. So, uh, guide our time. Uh, guide this time, Lord, Lord, let me speak only what is true. Help me to be quick through all these points, and, uh, and we love you, Jesus. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. All right. Um, I always start off with our theme overview. Uh, four themes. Anybody remember what they were? Blessing. Covenant was number four. Here, I'll give them to you. Sin and judgment, <laughs> grace and covenant. Um, there are a lot of these showing up in this chapter, but I'm going to save all this for the end if we have time um, because there's a ton of stuff to cover um, here, here at the start. Um, and actually, before I even dive in, I made a sticky note so I wouldn't forget to say these things. Two announcements that, that I want to make sure you guys are aware of that apply just us as men. Uh, first thing, we do a men's prayer breakfast. If you're newer to our church, you probably don't know this, but uh, a few times a year we gather together just as men uh, to pray for each other, to pray for our church, to pray for our community, to pray for our families. Um, the next one's coming up November the 4th. I've been putting the link in the, in the weekly emails. Um, I'll, I'll put it in today's email as well when I send out the recording. Uh, if you'd like to join us, feel free. That's an environment. You're welcome to bring your sons. If you are a father, you're welcome to bring other men in your life. Uh, it's totally free. And the people that, that provide the breakfast are amazing. And they, it, it's, like not, it's not just like eggs and bacon. It's like, I, I just can't even describe it. I think the last time it was, it was a brisket biscuit with like this, this uh, sauce of some kind. What was it, cranberry sauce, Jim? It was, it was a, yeah, it was, but we can't tell the exact recipe. 
Oh, is that, is Matt, yeah. Yeah, it's like creation. We it can't know God. Worship, yeah. It made you worship God. It did. It, it made me worship God. It, just like creation. We see Genesis 1, and you just like marvel at God's goodness. It was like that. So uh, I don't know what they're doing this next time, um, but regardless, I'm sure it'll be good. Hope hope you can join us for that if you'd like to. Um, and then secondly, this is, this is new. Um, many of you are probably familiar with Buford Head Start. They're right over here uh, down Maddox Road from us. It's where the overflow parking lot is on Sunday mornings. A wonderful organization that does preschool education for our community, kids in our area, um, and they're so gracious to us. We have a great relationship with them where they let us park there uh, for free, and they're just super kind to us in so many different ways. Well, they have a need, um, and I'd just love to uh, help meet it if possible. Um, they're looking for some readers, so uh, adults, and specifically they're asking for men because a lot of these kids don't have men in their lives um, who might be willing to come in and just read some kids' books to the kids. Um, 10.30 to 11 a.m. is the window. So I know that many of you probably can't do that because of your work schedules. But if any of you have flexibility in your life and might be interested, I'm going to put the link on how to sign up in the email as well today. Um, they've got a few dates in October. They're looking for some readers to come by and, uh, and just sit with the kids. If you speak Spanish, that's like an extra plus um, because a lot of the kids speak Spanish too. You don't have to speak Spanish, though. They, um, most of them all understand English. So, um, What was that? Do they just want men? Uh, they don't just want men, but they're specific. I wanted to mention it in here because uh, they're looking for like male role models who can sort of, um, oh, totally yeah, understand. yeah. So, but but women, if you have wives who might be interested, that'd be great as well. But yeah, just a uh, <laughs> FYI on that. All right, with that, uh, let's jump in here. So, um, this text is probably one of the most widely read, studied, written upon texts in the entire Bible. In fact, there's a there's a scholar I was I was. Uh, reading this week, and he said this passage is arguably the single most reflected upon written text in all of human history. Um, so through time, I mean, this is even pre-New Testament writings. We have some uh, like uh, uh, late uh, before Christ era um, writings that are the Jewish scholars trying to interpret and trying to understand and grapple with the Genesis text. And then really from the early church on, Philo, the, the Jewish uh, uh, writer, Jewish leader in Alexandria in the first century. He li- actually, his life overlapped with the life of Christ. He didn't live in Jerusalem. He lived down in Alexandria in Egypt. But he wrote a ton on Genesis. And then from him forward, we have just mountains and mountains and mountains of, of written records about God's people trying to understand and to uh, put interpretation to the words that we studied this week. Um, it truly is regarded almost universally, as a literary masterpiece. So what Moses finished up with here, and we know God is the ultimate author as he inspired Moses to write it, but, but the form that it finally finished into in its original Hebrew is, is not just another chapter of narrative history in the Bible. It is regarded as this like literary masterpiece. I mean, like looking at the Mona Lisa kind of a thing. And, and maybe you picked up on this as you read it. We don't see all the beauty of it when we're reading English, but you can see most of it. The repetition that exists in this in this passage, the, the numerical significances that, that exist, the symmetry in the development of creation, the themes that begin to pull out, all of it just you know, screams how beautiful this account of uh, the creation unfolding was. Um, and our study, I think, did a really good job of bringing this into our view, but I want to do it even more so as we start off because I think this will help um, 
as I, as I try to draw out some application and some points to this. But So a few things that are beautiful in this text. First, the arrangement. Um, perhaps you noticed this, perhaps you didn't, but creation unfolds in six days, and those six days are in two pairs of three, and each set in the three correspond to each other as God, you know, in, in uh, verse 1, we're told God creates the heavens and the earth. He creates it all. And then we're told in verse 2 that the earth was uh, void and, and empty. It was, it was darkness covered and the waters covered and the Spirit of God was fluttering. You know? But um, the original state of the earth that God brought into being was a formless and empty void. And God in the days 1 through 6, He enters into that emptiness and enters into that void and brings uh, a form to the earth. It was formless before. He brings form. And then He fills it with creation. So um, the way this unfolds, if you, if you read closely, you would have seen this. But in day 1, light is created. Uh, let there be light, God says. Well, in day 4, the luminaries are created. The sun and the moon, the stars, the things that uh, order the light and order the seasons uh, sort of uh, fill up the, the form that God gave to the earth. You might be asking yourself, how was there light? when there was no sun? That's a valid question. It's one of the reasons why some interpreters wonder if this was actually six 24-hour solar days. If there wasn't a sun, if there wasn't a solar system, how could we have a 24-hour day? Um, that's a very valid question that a lot of interpreters use to say, hey, this isn't talking about 24-hour days. This is something different. Um, I think it very well could be 24 hours just without a sun. How could there be light without a sun? Well, the same way there will be a light without a sun in uh, the new heavens and the new earth. If you've read Revelation, we're told that uh, in the new Jerusalem, the new city, there will be no sun, that the Lamb will be the light, that, that Jesus himself will exude light and give us light to the whole, and there won't ever be night, actually. Fascinating reality. So, uh, But there you go, f- f- uh, forming creation and filling creation. Day two and day five are, this, are, are the same. Uh, God creates the, he separates the waters and creates this expanse between them that we call sky, and, and the waters below are now existing. Day five, he fills the sky, he fills the waters with birds and fish. Uh, day three, he, he calls the land up out of the waters um, and, and creates vegetation upon that land. And day six, he fills that land with animals and with uh, mankind that, uh, and they have the, the plants that they can then eat. So you see this symmetry, this, this arrangement in the structure of creation unfolding that's just very intentional, very careful, very ordered, uh, very beautiful. Um, it, it points to the beauty of this uh, chapter to be sure. Another thing to notice in here, the numerical structure, the numerical symmetry. Um, inherent throughout the entire account is this emphasis on the number seven. Did you pick up on that? So most clear there's seven days of creation. That's very obvious. Uh, the six days are paired off and then you, you don't have a pair at the conclusion. You have a single culminating thing and that's very intentional. It, it sort of draws your attention to why is there only one here? He's doing something significant on the seventh day. Also, the first sentence, you don't see this in the English, but in the Hebrew, has seven words. The second sentence has 14, so a multiple of seven. The word God shows up 35 times, which is a multiple of seven. You might be like, why is all this math? Well, again, it's, it's so uh, careful and intentional. People like this had to be on purpose. The words heaven and earth each appear 21 times, which is a multiple of seven. Uh, the seventh paragraph in the Hebrew text, uh, which corresponds to the seventh day, has three sentences that each have seven words, and in the middle of those three sentences is the word is the phrase the seventh day. So it's just like this emphasis on seven sort of screams out, pay attention to what's happening on the seventh day. Um, Moses intentionally, just in a brilliant way, uh, pointing this out. There was a, a scholar, Umberto Casudo, who who remarked on this. He said the numerical symmetry is, as it were, a golden thread that binds together all the parts of this section of Scripture. So so just commentators noting that this is not just writing. This is like really carefully crafted writing. 
Um, the repetition, I'll bring that up as well. You notice this, but again and again and again, repetition is happening in, in this verse. You know, uh, each day begins with, and God said. And then it concludes with, there was evening, there was morning, the first day, the second day, the third day. Um, and it was so. Every time God speaks creation into existence, uh, it's followed by, and it happened. It, it was so. You know, this, this repeated reminder that, that what God speaks come in, comes into beating, being. Um, again and again it says, and God saw that it was good. He sort of gives an assessment of his, his creation. Uh, God separates multiple things through this passage. The repetition is just so significant. And many scholars um, believe that this was intentional on Moses' part, on God's part, to make sure that the Israelites could remember this because they didn't have written copies of, of Genesis as they're wandering through uh, the desert. They're slaves heading towards the promised land. Um, Moses is writing this down. He's giving them uh, the account of creation. Uh, possibly there was some oral tradition uh, that, that Moses received this from, but uh, without any doubt, he wanted to make it memorable. Um, God wanted the Israelites to be able to remember this stuff, so the repetition sort of helps with that, just like a nursery rhyme uh, might do. But, but it's so significant, it's so poignant in um, this part of Scripture that when it breaks, your attention is drawn to it, right? So when the, the repeated pattern, when the, when the pattern doesn't show up, you're suddenly like, what's going on here? So, for example, the seventh day, did you notice it didn't have an evening and a morning? It seems like it's an eternal day that God is perpetually resting. What's that about? That's significant. On days three and six, the culmination of each pair, um, God speaks twice. Let there be happens twice. Um, and then God calls it good twice. And on the sixth day, at the very end, he calls it very good. You know, it's, it's this like, what's going on? It's, it's distinctive. It's to draw your attention to what he's saying. Um, even in the uh, day six, when God is creating mankind, different things show up. Let us make. You know, suddenly he's, he's speaking to himself, not just let there be, but let us. He draws your attention to it. And then the prose of Genesis 1 breaks and you get a poem. And he says, God created them male and female. Uh, God created them in, in his image. You know, repeats that word creation three times in that little section. Um, and, and all of it just pulling your attention to significance. So in, in all those places where you see the, the repetition break, it, it, it has significance that you can dig deep into. We don't have time to do all that. But, um, but at least wanted to draw your attention to these things because they are significant. They are uh, indications of just how incredible and beautiful this literary masterpiece is and why it's been the subject of such careful study through the ages. There have been so many books written on Genesis chapter 1 that there are books written about the books, written on Genesis chapter 1. I read two of them that were sort of like giving this like overview of all the interpretation that's been done through time. Um, and, and through it all, the biggest takeaway that I've had is this is beautiful, beautiful, majestic scripture. I mean, God is showing off here, um, and there's, there's no way to adequately cover this in 30 minutes. But um, here's how I want to quickly structure our last 15 minutes. Um, first, I want to give you an overview of how uh, different, scholars have interpreted Genesis. So is this literal? Is this figurative? How, do, how should we think about, how should we interpret this stuff? I want to I give you some of the major views, very quickly give you an overview of that, and then I want to draw out three significant takeaways that I think we should pay attention to. So uh, first, the six views on creation that we could talk about. First, atheistic evolution. And um, I'm going to go ahead and say that this is not actually a view on creation, but this is a view that's widely held in our, our culture today, so I want to give it to you. This is the denial of the existence of a creator at all. Uh, this, this holds to pure scientific reason in uh, the creation of our world. Uh, the universe, matter, all of life spontaneously emerged um, and evolved out of the you know, dissolving explosion called the Big Bang uh, billions of years ago. Uh, that disorder brought about 
through time, the order of our universe. That's what atheistic evolution would hold. Um, but there's another view, theistic evolution, which would be sort of scientifically minded people um, who have studied all that science very deeply and find it to be incredibly credible um, and therefore hold to it. Only uh, within it, they would say that under evolution stands God. And God is the original, you know, bang of the Big Bang. He was the one who created that matter, and he's the one who exploded it. But he created it in such a way that the world naturally, through the natural processes, came into being. Um, you know, I, I still think that's a very incredible, um, uncredible view um, to hold, to be honest with you, because I think that when you read Genesis, uh, this is, this is uh, not something that you can... You can um, it doesn't seem like God is, is hands-off in the creation process. I mean, uh, regardless of how you want to interpret it, God is doing something there. But that is a view that some, uh, even Christians, do hold. So, a uh, third view, gap theory. Um, this view holds that there is an enormous gap of time, unlimited time even, between verses 1 and 2 of Genesis. So, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, but then there was a maybe even billions of years, that could explain why the age happened, before the earth became formless and void. And they say during those billions of years, God created the angels, the angelic kingdoms, and uh, Satan rebelled in that time. There was the cosmic war, and that's why the earth was left formless, that it wasn't originally created that way. We don't have the account of the original creation. What we have in Genesis 1 thus is a recreation of the earth after that. Um, that is pure speculation. That is not in the Bible. That is uh, people trying to explain when angels and demons were created because we're not told in Genesis chapter 1. Um, but it is one that, that people have held through history trying to understand some of these things, wanted to make sure you were aware it existed. Fourth one, uh, six-day creationism. So this is literal 24-hour solar days is, is what happened when God created the earth. So this all unfolded in our same modern understanding of a week. Um, the earth is young. It was all created very literally as described in these in these verses. Uh, fifth one would be progressive creationism. This one, similar to six day, holds to a literal interpretation of Genesis 1. However, the key distinction is that, and this is also known as the day-age theory, but it basically says each day is not actually a day, that that word corresponds to an age, um, and therefore creation was a progressive uh, act of stages, but it didn't have to happen within uh, six specific days. Um, there's also some like subviews within this where maybe it did happen in six 24-hour periods, but there could have been a lot of time between the 24-hour periods. Um, a lot, again, a lot of things have been written on this, but that's that's a, a widely held view actually. Um, and then the sixth one, the literary framework view. This one takes the Genesis account as pure literary structure. It is not intended to tell you what happened. It is not intended to be taken literally. They hold it as essentially as as poetry, a, a literary device to help teach the truths of God's creation, but it did not unfold in any literal way uh, within six stages or six steps. Uh, perhaps it all happened instantaneous. There is an instantaneous view within that that just holds that God created everything all at once. So there you go, six different ways. Um, I read a ton on all this. Uh, I think it's very easy to throw out the first two, atheistic and theistic evolution. You know, they just... Disorder does not come out of uh, chaos, or I mean, order does not come out of chaos. Uh, it violates all the laws of thermodynamics. I mean, this, is, this just isn't how the world exists. Even the, I read this fascinating study, they've, they've tried to provoke 
uh, evolution. They've, like, they take, they've taken a rose and tried to make it a super rose. And, and they figured out if you throw radiation at a rose, you can actually change that rose and cause it to evolve. And you can make it have more petals than it would normally have or less petals than it would normally have. You can, you can provoke an evolutionary change in a rose. However, if you stop, if you, you know, you got this super rose with all these petals, if you stop and you just let then that rose continue to exist in nature and produce its own offspring, guess what? The offspring goes back to normal. So even like provoking change doesn't, you know, it's just, there's a lot of breakdowns. The, the evolutionary theory is just that. It's a theory. So we can reject one and two. The other four, though, there are true, sincere, Bible-believing Christians through time. Some of the heroes of your faith, uh, people through history that have held each of the different ones. You know, the more I studied this, even trying to, it's been a long time since I was in seminary learning this stuff for the first time. The more I studied it to try and like solidify what I believe on this stuff, the less sure I felt about what I believe. Um, because there are sincere arguments for each of the views and sincerely held by guys I would absolutely expect to hang out with in heaven one day. So all that to say, I don't know where you're coming at when you read Genesis, but I want to say this is an open-handed issue at Emmaus Church. I, I talked with Anson about this. I listened back to his sermon on Genesis 1. Um, we have an open-handed view of how this happened. If you want to hold to six literal days, awesome. If you want to say those are, those are ages, Awesome. You are welcome here. Uh, we have different, uh, we have space for different interpretations of this. Um, I'm not even going to tell you my view. If you want to know, we can talk afterwards. But, um, but I, I like this quote. I think this helps sort of sum up the point I want to make here. It's therefore an established fact, this is Kent Hughes, um, that godly, scripture-loving people who have given their lives to God's Word have differed over the opening verses of the Bible. What they have not differed on is the utter truth of God's Word and that the Genesis accounts are factual and historical. Neither have they differed on the historicity of Adam and Eve as special creations of God and the truth of the fall. This ought to give pause to those who would employ a particular, oops, sorry, particular view of creation as a litmus test for orthodoxy. Furthermore, the remarkable diversity of the major views of the six days ought to make us cautious and humble in our judgments. So um, I would encourage you towards that humility. When you, when you study this, we are seeing incredible truths about God. Um, and if we get into the weeds and just want to argue, we're actually missing the whole point. So um, we, should, we should approach it with humility and, and try to see the big points. So towards that end, three big points I want to, I want to put before you this morning. If you want to fill in the blanks on the back of your uh, paper there, number one, um, God has carefully ordered creation to display his glory. This, is, this has got to be the biggest thing playing out here. And it's, I'm not going to spend too long here because we talked about this last week, but um, what we are seeing in Genesis 1 is incredible order, incredible intentionality. Uh, incredible systems playing out. God has carefully ordered his creation process and carefully ordered the creation that he created in such a way that we know without any doubt he was not careless, he was not haphazard, he was not cavalier, uh, quite the opposite. He is a deeply systemized and careful and, and ordered God. And he did it that way to display his glory to us, that as we look at creation, as we look at this account of creation, we would be, you know, marveling at his majesty, his glory, his power. Um, another way to think about this, how many type A people do we have in the room? Yeah, you, you like organization, you like systems, your closet, you know, all the hangers are the right way. You get upset if one's not the right way. Uh, you like spreadsheets, all that kind of stuff. Well, God is type A, is what I want you to see here. You know, he, he, he loves spreadsheets too. Um, uh, and you, you can see it just in the way he chose to do this. Uh, he could have made creation instantaneously. You get that, right? Like he's sovereign, omnipotent God. He could have just spoken and everything existed all at once. 
And in a sense, he stands outside of time, so even measuring his time is, is an is a oxymoron. But, um, but he could have, with, with unlimited power, made it all at once and just said, hey, I created it all. But he didn't. He chose to do it progressively. God chose to unfold creation in a systematized order to teach us something about his character, to teach us this magnificent, you know, ordered nature that he has uh, to show us his majesty. Um, and none of that should surprise us, right? Because when we, when we look at creation, we see the same thing. No matter how far you look out with a telescope or how deep you look down with a microscope, we see order everywhere. We see order in our solar system. We, we talked about this last week. The, the Earth is, is in the perfect spot in our solar system. Venus is too hot. Mars is too cold. Uh, but we're right here able to be warm and cold because it's on an axis of 23 degrees. And, and just that axis, we have seasons, which guess what that means? That means that sometimes it's hot on the whole Earth and sometimes it's cold, which means the water, though it freezes sometimes, it also thaws. And so we, if, we, if we were further away or if we were at the same spot but didn't have our axis, guess what would happen? All the water would freeze at the poles. We would have no water in the center of the Earth. And we'd all have to like go live in Antarctica to have water. I mean, it's, it's crazy the kind of order that we have in our, in our universe, in our solar system. And the same thing when you look at atoms, when you, when you take atomic microscopes and, and look down to the smallest uh, building blocks of matter, the neutrons, the protons, protons, the electrons, you know, they're all in their own gravitational dance with this, with this crazy, we, we can't even see it all, like our best microscopes can't actually uh, see what's happening down there, but, but everywhere we look, we see order. Um, and here, when we give an account at, of how all that was made, we shouldn't be surprised at all to see that it is also carefully ordered. Everywhere we look, God is an ordered God. Why? He wants to show off. He wants to show us his glory. This is, goes back to Romans 1. Uh, he, he wanted to make his invisible attributes, his divine power, uh, his eternal nature clearly seen in the things that have been made. Um, it's to demonstrate who he is so that we know he existed. Um, it's a little bit like this. Uh, this is a, a video of... Uh, a Walmart next generation AI powered distribution center. So they almost have no employees in these buildings. Um, they're, they're moving boxes and groceries and supplies all around, getting them on trucks ultimately so they can go to the Walmart stores. Um, Pastor Jared and actually uh, Mike Beck's son, uh, Pastor Jared's brother, is uh, an engineer for Walmart and he helps design this stuff. And, and the point I want you to see is when you see all this functioning, you know, your brain in, on no level thinks, oh, this just, this just came into existence on its own. I mean, order and systems and organization doesn't spontaneously come out of a pile of rocks. I mean, I mean this kind of stuff is ordered. Therefore, there was an orderer. This kind of stuff came into being. Therefore, there was an originator. Um, that's the point that I think God is doing in this account of creation and in creation itself. He's showing himself off. He's making himself clean. Uh, this complex design demands a designer. So, uh, number two, God has blessed mankind with dominion over creation. Um, through his account, he is, he is showing off with great power, omnipotence, you could call it dominion over creation, and he culminates his creative process with, on, this, on the sixth day, creating mankind. And a lot of repetition in Genesis is broken at that point. We see that, that man is the, the crown jewel of his creation, distinctive in so many ways. Uh, we're told that he made man and woman in his image. So he bestows upon them something that he didn't give to the rest of creation. In one sense, we are just like the, the sun and the moon and the animals of the earth. We're creatures before creator. But in another sense, we stand above all that as creatures made in his image. Um, which means we have, we have a soul, we have a mind, we have a will, we have an ability to know him and to worship him. And, and all of that is really incredible, but 
as he gives them his image, look at verse 28 if you've, if you've got your text in front of you. He also says this. He says, God blessed them and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heaven, over the living, every living thing that moves on the earth. He blesses mankind and then he gives to mankind dominion, authority, the uh, responsibility to step into this world he's made and just like he stepped into the darkness and brought order, stepped into the chaos and brought systems, in the same way he's given us dominion to do the same thing on this earth. Like it is a good thing for mankind to step into a field that is chaotic, your backyard, and to mow it and to you know, trim it and to create order where there was chaos before. It is a good thing when mankind goes and, and where there was once a forest builds a city and builds a structure for humans to thrive. And it's a good thing when, when you as a husband step into the chaos of your marriage and bring order. I mean, God has given dominion and, and given us His image and we're supposed to, in the same way he, he does this ordering thing, we're supposed to do it as well. We're vice regents under God to have dominion on the earth. We're going to talk about this a whole lot more next week. Uh, as we get into Adam and, and what God does with Adam in the early days of the garden, uh, we're going to see this stuff. But I wanted to touch on it now because uh, I want to build the foundation and I want you to see it from the start. God has intrinsically from the very beginning given you a purpose, which is to step towards chaos and to bring order into the mess. So sitting back in a posture in your lazy boy watching TV is not what God created you for. And if that's all you do, you're going to feel purposeless. You're going to feel depressed. You're going to feel chaotic. Going in your yard and doing some work is godly. It's, design, it's inherently a part of who you were made. So I just want you to see that. It's on display here. Significant thing. Uh, man, we, we never have enough time. Um, real quick, into the fabric of time, God has ordered rest. Um, so much stuff about the seventh day, so much significant in the literary distinctiveness on the seventh day um, is meant to be there for a reason to pull our attention to it. God has blessed he, he only blesses creation prior to this moment, but suddenly he blessed one of the days. And it says he made it holy. And it's the first time anything is made holy by God, the first time anything is sanctified. And surprisingly, it's not mankind that he made holy. It is the day. It's the Sabbath day. Um, and, and on that day, with all the significance that we're meant to see, what does God do? He rests, which is really surprising because does God need to rest? No. So why is he resting? Well, he's doing it as a as a model for us. He's demonstrating uh, that though He is eternal and infinite, we're not. Though He can do anything, though He is limitless, we're not. We're not supermen. Uh, we, we are meant to rest, and He's modeling it for us for uh, right there in the seventh day. Uh, Exodus 20 is a, a place we see this. Um, I'm going to skip that for the sake of time, but what I do want you to see without any doubt is Moses, inspired by God, is teaching us uh, a model for our lives built into the very fabric of every week that we have, which is that we are not intended to go nonstop. We are intended to have rest, um, and, and it was made for us, Jesus teaches us. The Sabbath was made for man to protect us. So real quick, three takeaways, what we should do in response to this. You should marvel at creation. You should worship God. Go hike a mountain. Go stare at a sunset. Go look in a microscope and, and marvel at the ordered God we worship and, and worship Him in response. Number two, you should step towards chaos and subdue it. Where you see chaotic things in your life, God's called you to have dominion. Um, and, and you should uh, express that dominion in a godly way. And number three, you're not Superman. Remember, you need to rest. If you've been going, 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 if your job has been pushing, pushing, pushing you, hear me, hear the Lord. You are not made for that. It will not go well you will be crushed. Dominion is to be exerted, but not indefinitely.
There's rest built into the fabric of time. So honor it. Uh, Let me pray. God, we love you. Send us out of here as men in your image. We love you. Um, Help us to worship you rightly. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thanks, guys. Have a good week. Hey, guys. As promised, wanted to circle back up and do our theme overview since we didn't get a chance to do it this morning during our time together. But um, uh, as we look at this text, Genesis 1, verse 1, all the way to chapter 2, verse 3, uh, I do see some development in in most of our themes. Um, Let's go through each one. First, the theme of blessing and um, and its corresponding theme of cursing. Um, We are seeing that, especially the blessing side of this, the main part of that theme. Um, God's active work to you know, interrupt and intervene in his creation and bless them. Um, there's three times that this word appears in our text this week. First in verse 21 when God blesses the animals. Um, then in verse 27 when God blesses uh, mankind, man and woman that he created. He blesses them. That's verse 27. And then um, in chapter 2, verse 3, he blesses the seventh day. So three times God uh, steps into his creative work and offers these blessings. And with the first two, with the, the animals and with uh, mankind, it, it appears that, that blessing is related to multiplying life, that, that God is giving them the command to be fruitful and multiply, and he's blessing them for that. So sort of uh, childbearing and, and the ability to have children and see life expand as a blessing from God, the, the expansion of um, uh, your, your progeny in, in that sense. Um, that's what we're seeing there on the on the seventh day. There's there's blessing inherently given um, not to a living thing, but to the, that day of the week set it, set apart as the Sabbath, the day for our rest, as we saw this morning during our time together. So, again and again, you know, God has called His creation good. Uh, he's given His His verbal you know affirmation of the goodness of His creation throughout. But these three distinct moments of uh, an extra. Uh, divine convocation of favor, a blessing placed upon um, the animals, mankind, and, and the, the Sabbath day. We see just sort of the beginnings of this theme developing here. Uh, second theme, sin and judgment. Uh, this one is is really not present yet. Like so far, everything's good. God's created his His creation, and as he has said, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's very good. Um, we have not yet seen sin enter. We're going to pick that up in in chapter 3, and uh, that's really where this theme is going to begin to blossom. Um, One note I will say on this theme, though, is that there are some interpreters um, who do see uh, sin and judgment playing out even here in chapter 1. I do not. I want to be clear on that, but um, this falls in with those um, that that hold to the gap theory, um, which we talked about this morning, which is basically that between verses 1 and 2 of Genesis chapter 1 is a undefined space of time, a big gap in which uh, God created the angels and the angels fell. Uh, some of the angels fell, and those were the ones that um, became the demons, and, and their leader, of course, would be Lucifer, Satan, the devil. Um, and that perhaps that, that cosmic rebellion that happened is what left the earth in its void, you know, empty state um, in verse 2 that we find it. And so uh, it's possible that that happened. If that is what happened, then surely there was judgment and sin playing out there. Um, but as I mentioned earlier, this is this is totally speculation and extra biblical thinking. Um, it is not in anywhere um, in, in this text or in any other text in the Bible, and so this is not something I would say is present. But uh, just wanted you to be aware. Uh, third theme: grace. You know, amidst the corruption of sin, God's showing His grace and kindness and interrupting sin and judgment with mercy. Um, 
we do not uh, really see that one here at all. Again, this is one of those that's going to come into view later as we continue. Um, sin has not yet appeared, so uh, grace is not yet necessary. Um, but the fourth one, covenant. <clears throat> God's a promise maker. He's a promise keeper. He bestows covenant love on his people. I do see this one present. Um, it's not explicit. It's implicit, but um, but it's a prophetic glimpse that's there in the seventh day. So, um, you know, here in the six days of creation, there's a lot of work of God, but then he rests on the seventh. And Hebrews chapter 4 sort of unpacks this as not just being, you know, a literal understanding of how creation unfolded, but um, though it is that, it's also a prophetic glimpse of a coming rest for us that, that one day we will have ultimate rest in eternity with God, that there still awaits for mankind a coming rest for those who trusted in Jesus. And so in that sense, I, I sort of see a proto-promise here, a proto-covenant. It's not fully developed, um, but in a prophetic sense, it is still present as God establishes this covenant with his people um, that will you know, grow into the covenant of um, you know, eternal life that, that's given in Christ. So um, there you have it, um, some, some seeds of the themes that we've been tracking. We'll continue to track those and hopefully see some good stuff along the way. Um, thanks for tuning in, and uh, we'll see you guys next Wednesday.